So glad to have you guys here this morning. Um, we've been going through uh, the book of Acts, as you probably know. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to dig in this morning. We're just going to kind of jump in, but first we're just going to pray, and then we'll get into our text this morning, okay? So would you just, just join me, and we'll pray together. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much. Thank you for this beautiful morning, this time that we have uh, been able to gather together, and we just want to open up your word, and we want to listen, uh, Lord, so we want to have um, hearts and ears and minds or, you know, whatever things that we need, Lord, in order to receive from you. Uh, Lord, we, we want to we give you those things. We want to we have those things, Lord. So would you speak to us, God? Would you, uh, by your word and according to your spirit, Lord, uh, teach us some things about, about who you are, about what your nature is, and, and, and how um, we have good things in you, or good things. Lord, we look to you, Lord, the giver of good gifts. Uh, we ask you for your grace, Lord. We ask you for your wisdom. Uh, we ask you to, to lead us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Hey, so we're going to dive right into the book of Acts, and we're sort of picking up right where we left off uh, last week, so it, it all like builds on top of each other here. We're going to back up a little bit into some of the verses just to give context for the ones going forward, okay? So picking up in Acts 16, verse 16, uh, we've got this. Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and, and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. And Paul was greatly annoyed. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her right away. And when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Um, so, you know, just kind of backing up a little bit into where we were, you know, Paul and Silas are, are going around, they're going around uh, Philippi, the city of Philippi, this is in, in Europe, what's modern day Greece, northeastern Greece, um, and they encounter, they're pre preaching the gospel everywhere they go, they're talking to people about Jesus, and they're being followed um, by this girl, this spirit-possessed girl. Um, we talked about it last week, but yeah, they're out, they're doing this, um, and, and what Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us is that she has a spirit. Now, what does that mean even? What does it mean to have a spirit? I feel like we all have spirits. We all have souls, right? But this is something else. Um, but it's funny enough because to us, it's sort of we like need an explanation for what that means. But to the original audience, there was no comment necessary. It was understood what was meant. And it's, it's, it's meant, what is meant by this is that there is a spiritual influence being exerted upon this girl that's not of herself, something foreign to her. She has this spiritual influence going on in her. Um, in this idea that people can be, in very real and tangible way, ways, impacted by spiritual forces, it needed no explanation in the culture to whom this letter, to whom this, this, uh, this account was originally written, right? Because everybody understood it. It only is to people like us, that is very modern people, and not only just modern people, but modern people living in the United States, Europe, you know, kind of the, the cultures that have gone very materialistic and very secular and have, have, have lost a sense of what the spiritual world is like. Only to us do we need to ask the question, what does this mean to have a spirit? Um, which honestly maybe should make us wonder a little bit, make us wonder a little bit, make us wonder if it's true that 
pretty much the whole world up until, you know, we got so smart, we're just dumb, right? Should make us wonder, is that, is that it? Is that the true story of what's happening? Are, are we super smart and they were just super dumb? Or are we maybe missing something? Are we a, a little bit lost? And are, have we lost some understanding of what the world is really like? Because we live in a culture that just assumes that the world cannot or cannot be or is not the kind of place where there is spiritual reality playing out in a tangible way. We don't have any context for that. We don't really understand that naturally. Um, but I think that assumption actually uh, comes up against some problems. There's some practical reasons why that is not a helpful assumption to you personally in your own life. Some practical reasons. Um, there's this, this quote by a guy named Paul Tyson. Paul Tyson, he's a, he's a seminary professor and he writes about modern culture. And he says this, he says, there are no more difficult problems to solve than those that do not exist. <laughs> uh, if we do not understand what our real problems are, our most intelligent problem-solving strategies will fail to, keep, uh, to make any impact on reality. Genuine solutions to real problems do not follow from a misassigned understanding of what the real problem is. So, so the question is, I guess the proposition is, if the world is, as the Bible kind of represents, it's a place where there are spiritual things going on, and we are sorts of people who don't allow for there to be spiritual things to go on, then we kind of are backed ourselves into a problematic corner in that we have not given ourselves the tool in order to address reality, at least as it's presented to us. We've got to actually understand that if we have a problem, and some of our problems are spiritual, if we don't have a way of addressing that problem, we actually are creating and embedding ourselves deeply into this problem. What Paul Tyson is saying, that if we organize our understanding of the world and its problems around wrong assumptions, we will never make progress in solving our real problems. And that's the way it is with spiritual things. Paul Tyson illustrates, he illustrates this, I think, in a helpful way, by talking about the way his own government, he's, he's Australian, has tried to solve the problem of youth suicide, which is a major issue uh, in Australia. He says this, and this is a little wonky, so, so bear with me on this, but I think he's getting to something really important. He says, a key aspect of this tragic failure is the technocratic grid through which the problem and its likely solutions are seen. The grid has to make the problem of statistical increase in youth suicide amenable to the categories of implementable policies. And I know that's a word salad, but we're going to get to it in a second. Um, a way of seeing both the problem and the solution that is blind to the existential and spiritual drivers. So basically, he's saying, we're trying to, in Australia to deal with this problem, the fact that we have increasing youth suicide every year. And all the programs, the programs that we as the government can implement to fix these things, they don't seem to do anything. In fact, every year, the problem gets worse. Every year, the problem gets worse because we are not able to think of the problem in terms of spiritual or existential issues. So the government has a set of tools that cannot address the problem. And that is a problem. It makes the problem more entrenched. Now, if you're super skeptical about the spiritual world, which I don't, I don't think everyone is, but maybe some of you are, um, there's probably no way for me to really just, just talk you into believing it. Um, but I can tell you this. Without understanding that there's a spiritual world and that it's actually impacting you, you will be feeling the impacts of it. You will. I just think that's inevitable. You're just not going to have the tools to do anything about it. 
you're not going to have the tools, tools given to us by God, in order to deal with these things. But Paul, he really understood the spiritual world. And he understood that to deal with it, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the primary tool, the news, the proclamation of who Jesus is. As we understand the gospel and apply what it means to our lives, then we can actually start to deal with and have the tools to deal with spiritual things. See, the gospel is good news. Simply, that's what gospel means. It's good news, and it is good news that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus has come, God has come in the flesh, he's been sent into the world to save people from the power of sin and death, from the power of Satan, from the power of darkness. Jesus died and he rose again, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he is overseeing his kingdom and he is exerting power and authority over all things and he is watching over all those who are his, who are his, who have his spirit, who've been saved by him. Paul explains this in Ephesians 1:18. He says this, I pray, and this is again his, his urgent plea for the church that they would have their eyes open. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand, uh, his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything. See, the gospel, the good news, is this great news that all power and all dominion in the natural world and in the spiritual world comes under and is subject to the authority of Jesus. That's part of the gospel. It's a part that, because we are sort of materialists, we don't like to think of spiritual things, we don't like to think very often about, but it's very clear in the Gospels and in the writings of Paul, that Paul understood the authority of Jesus and the authority of Jesus being established over all things, spiritual and material, through his death and resurrection. And so it would be, I think, a mistake for us to miss out on this part of the Gospel. It's a mistake not to understand Jesus' real spiritual authority. In fact, as far as Paul understood the world, the spiritual authority of Jesus was primary, and it's really important. I mean, later on in the book of Ephesians, he explains this, and this is probably a verse you've, you've heard before, Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, like spiritual forces in the heavens. Man, the Bible is wild. The Bible is wild. Like, we think it's, oh, it's just this cute little, little thing that nice little people who dress nice and are nice people who read. Man, the Bible is wild. Cosmic powers of darkness. Ah, oh, man, the Bible's crazy. Um, we have to understand, and the Bible just, like, takes this at face value, that the world that we live in, in the world that we live in, there is more than meets the eye. It's certainly more than meets the modern, secular eye. But whatever there is, again, this is the point, whatever there is, whatever power or whatever you know, elements or, or spiritual forces are going on, Jesus has authority over it all. But that's, that's something that the Bible makes super clear. He has authority over it all. Let's just keep reading here. Uh, back in Acts, um, Acts 20, 16, 20. 
uh, bringing them. So, okay, so they cast this girl out. People are upset because they were making money off of this girl. These slave owners were. And so bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, that is the owners of this girl, these men are seriously disturbing our city, or at least disturbing my pocket. They're Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for Romans to adopt or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack of them. And the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. So Paul, having addressed this spiritual problem, has really stepped into a hornet's nest. Things are getting very real. He's dealt with a spiritual thing, but having done that, he's suddenly caught up in uh, a, a battle that is, seems to be, feels like flesh and blood. It's certainly impacting his own flesh and blood. His feet are in the stocks. He's beaten up, thrown into the prison. He's He's uh, upset the slave owner's economic life by dealing with spiritual things. There seems to be a connection there. He's upset the Philippian government by dealing with spiritual things. Again, seems to be a connection between those things. Because the spiritual world and the world that we actually live in, the world that we go through our day-to-day lives in, they are totally tied up together. The Bible is unapologetic about this. I mean, Jesus spoke really matter-of-factly about this reality. He says in John 12, 31 and 32, he says, now, the judgment of, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, by which he means Satan and spiritual powers of darkness. As, as for me, if I am lifted up above the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then in, in John, 1 John, uh, John talks about uh, the same way, echoing the words of Jesus. He says, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The Bible talks very matter-of-factly about, about the nature of this world and, and the spiritual conflict that's kind of going on inside it to the point where we, Jesus kind of understood that there is corrupt spiritual influence and it's embedded deeply into the world. To the point where it's almost hard to separate the two unless something's done. But here's what I think I would like, really like you to know. Just as if it would be a mistake for us to uh, not understand that the spiritual world is a thing and it's, it's important, it would also be a mistake for us to get the wrong idea about the spiritual world. It would be a mistake for us to um, be anxious and afraid and like reading what Jesus says about the world and, and get like really worried. <laughs> that would be an equal mistake. I think sometimes Christians who believe in spiritual things and actually also non-Christians who believe in spiritual things, because there are a lot of them out there, particularly in Seattle. <laughs> it's a very spiritual place. Um, we get the wrong idea about how the spiritual world and the natural world really, really work together, right? It's, it's wrong to think they're totally separate or in that the only real thing is, is natural, but it's also like we got to understand rightly how these things connect together. See, we, we, we suddenly come to a realization that there's a spiritual conflict going on, and, and a lot of times people, people do this early on in their walk with Jesus. Um, but then we start to think, and I think this is where we make a little mistake, we start to think in terms hierarchical terms, like what is the most important and what is like less important. And that's, I think, where we start to be led into, frankly, some errors of thinking about what the spiritual world is like. 
Well, why do I say that? Well, let's read Paul's words again in, in Ephesians 6.12. I think there's two ways to read this, honestly. Right? He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Let's think about what Paul's saying. Is he saying none of this flesh and blood stuff matters? Some people read this verse and they think, man, we just got to look past it, see the spiritual stuff going on, and if we just see that, then we can engage only on the spiritual level, right? And forget about the material world. I don't think that's what he's saying, though. I think that would be a mistaken reading. What he's saying is that it, it might seem as if uh, our struggle is against a difficult people or circumstances. But what he's actually saying is that we're caught up into a big, bigger struggle. Paul isn't saying that your day-to-day -day life and the stuff that you're going through doesn't matter at all. What he's saying is that the spiritual world and the natural world are, are so tied up together. We can get so obsessed, I think, with either of these things in isolation, either, either the, the flesh and blood reality, the difficulties of my everyday life, and that would be a mistake, but we can also get so obsessed with the spiritual things that we, we start losing sight of how they're connected. We need to understand that the world is kind of a jumble, frankly. We need to understand that my life and my everyday life, it, it, it's part of, it, it, it exists in a spiritual context. I think that's what Paul is saying. Not that the only thing that matters is a spiritual, but he's saying that these things are connected. I like how um, Leslie Newbegin, who I quote from time to time, says it. He says, principalities and powers, and that's from a different translation, rulers and authorities is, is how I have it in the verses we look at, but same words being translated different ways. Principalities and powers are real. They are invisible, and we cannot locate them in space, but they do not exist as, as disembodied entities floating above this world or lurking within it. They meet us as embodied, invisible, and tangible realities. People, nations, and institutions, and they are powerful. Now, this is, again, the Bible is weird, and this is weird to think about, right? But I, what Leslie Newbigin is saying, and I think it's, it's really true to the apostolic view of the spiritual world, is that as we go through life, we experience things that feel like flesh and blood, but they're also just like there's a, there's a, there's a deeper reality behind them. And when we engage in spiritual conflict, it might seem as if we're just dealing with adverse life circumstances or difficult people, difficult situations. But Paul is, is making the case that our world and our experience of it is actually tied up in this bigger spiritual struggle. And that struggle is overflowing into our experiences of life. So what's, what's my point? And I really want to make it clear. My point is that, yes... We need to know that spiritual things matter, and we need to engage in spiritual things, and we do that through prayer. If, you, if, you, if, you, if you're not familiar with that, just read the book of Ephesians. Go home. It'll take you 20 minutes. It's six chapters. It's not long. And Paul really is laying out how we engage in this spiritual conflict. We do it through prayer, through, through putting on the word of God, through, through living an entire Christian life. This is how we engage in the spiritual battle. This is how we engage in those things. My point is also, we need to understand what's going in, on in our lives matters as well. It's like we don't need to just like forget about the difficulties that we're going to. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't give you, I, I, I don't think it's the nature of it, it doesn't give you the power to just neglect the world or ignore it. It actually gives you an understanding which should bring you peace and comfort that the world you're going through is a spiritual place. 
and that Jesus' authority is over all of it. In the spiritual things, the things you can't see, but also in the ways that that is impacting your everyday flesh and blood, day-to-day sort of life, it's important that we understand these things because the life that we live is so much more complex than we think it is. And so we have to pray and to understand and go to Jesus who has all the power and all the authority in difficult things. Like Jesus is Lord over even my emotional life, right? I can't see that. I can't see what's going on in my heart or in my soul, but I find and I experience sometimes influence that is not from me coming into me and making me angry and upset and agitated and I can actually understand that Jesus has spiritual authority of my life over everything. And so I can come in prayer and in confidence and I can come and lay hold of the authority that he's given me and I can just say, you know, Lord, you give me peace. You're a God of comfort. You're a God who is powerful and who cannot like, let things get in the way. And, and when my life gets complicated, I can go to God in prayer with that same spirit, understanding, man, there's nothing so overwhelming in life that it's going to separate me or keep me from uh, your, 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 your shepherding. Your, your, your influence in my life, no spiritual force can come against me that is so overwhelming or powerful that you are not more powerful than it. You're powerful than all other things. Let me just tell you this. There is nothing so spiritual as living your everyday life understanding who God is, understanding who Jesus is and what he's done in the spiritual realm. Like, we neglect everyday life. We neglect the choices that we make. We think, oh, and it's tempting to just think, oh, there's something bigger going on. Actually, I really believe if we're going to fight a spiritual battle, then we pay attention to the day-to-day life that you live. There's nothing so spiritual as living for the glory of God. So yeah, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to seek the power of the Lord. We need to seek his authority and, and his blessing and, and, and his will for everything. But I think a lot of times what we do is when we pray, we start to think, oh God, there's all these things around me and things are really hard. And we just look up. We, like, we look up in prayer. Or we pray with our eyes closed trying to get past the immediate. But I think we have to pray with our eyes open. You know, what I mean by that is, like, we need to pray understanding that God is going to work in my everyday life. We kind of, like, want to think that, oh, the Lord's just going to get over, get me over, get me past these difficult things. But there's a spiritual conflict that feels like flesh and blood that's going on in my everyday life. And I need to pray with my eyes open. I need to pray with an awareness that God is able, willing, and powerful enough to move in the conflicts that feel very mundane, and feel very natural, but are actually like filled with supernatural significance. We pray with our eyes open, and we look at the circumstances in our lives, and we understand that Jesus is going to do something in them. I think that like what is to me a helpful analogy to understand kind of the spiritual stuff that's going on in my life is um, it's this. Okay, so think about your house, and think about the drawer. You all have this drawer that is full of wires from the 1990s. You know that one, like the, the, the VHS power cable that you had? Like, it's there. You, you kept it. It's filling up a drawer. And what's going to happen when you go and you try to pick up one of those wires? The whole drawer is going to come out with it, right? Because it is tangled up in this terrible mess. If you want that one wire, and you're, let me just tell you, you're never going to want it. Just throw it all away. 
It's fine. Buy a new one on Amazon if you need one. Um, like as you pick up that drawer, you're going to try to pick up one thing and the whole thing is going to come up with it because everything in that drawer is entangled together. Such is life. I, I really think that's what life is like. That's what life is like in the world. Like, so, so like Jesus talks about the world and it's, it's under the power of Satan. You know, He's like the kingdom of the earth. That means that man, his influence is just tied up in stuff. It's tied up in stuff, and that can be stressful. You've ever tried to undo one of those knots? That can be stressful. But the great thing is that, like, Jesus can untangle that knot. Jesus is the one who can untangle it so that things get sort of less messed up. Jesus can deal with these challenges where, like, everything in my life feels, like, so loaded and difficult, but Jesus can untangle it. He's been set above every rule and authority, power and dominion. Jesus has come to destroy the works of Satan. Jesus is untangling the mess. As the gospel is preached, as it is believed, as we put faith in him and trust him to be who he says he is, his kingdom grows and the entanglements of life, all the sin that's mixed in with all the normal stuff of life, they're exposed and Satan's work is destroyed. And we put our faith that God's able to do that. That he's able to do that. It's what the gospel does. It frees us from the tangles of sin and from the power of darkness. Because he, we are now under the authority of Jesus, the one who has the right and ability to make things, to, to, to pull out the right wires and pull things out. Um, but let me be really clear. When we go about building the kingdom, when we go about seeking Jesus, when we go about putting the kingdom first and following him, the world will come at us, like, and it'll feel like a flesh and blood struggle. And we see this, exactly what happens to Paul and Silas, right? So this, let's keep reading. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Okay, so they got thrown in jail, locked up by their feet. They're in the inner part of the prison. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly... There was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. And when the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and he was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. I think it's really worth noting here. Like the gospel is going out. Paul is engaging in a spiritual battle. He's, he's making people mad uh, and they, they turn on him because he's upset the balance, the tangle of the world and the spiritual things that are going on. And what happens? What happens? As they start to arrest him, take him to the authorities, as the crowd turns on him and beats him, does God send a lightning bolt and stop the crowd? No, he doesn't. Let him get beat. Does the slave master get sick and die two weeks later? Well, at least not that we have here. <laughs> um, no, what happens is Paul and Silas are, are thrown in jail. In other words, like when you engage in spiritual battles, when you start to live your life according to the gospel, it doesn't mean that you're going to have an easy life. It doesn't mean it's going to be a cakewalk. And, and what's amazing is, and I think what's, what's important for us to note, is that Paul and Silas don't seem at all bothered by this. In fact, they consider this an opportunity to trust in the authority of God, to trust that even in the middle of this prison, beaten up, locked away, 
shackled together that God is still in control. That the chains that have been put on them are not really ultimate. They're not bothered by this. In fact, they have a rager of a hymn sing, right? They're up all night, midnight, singing hymns. And all everyone around them is listening to them. And then all of a sudden, this earthquake hits, the jail opens up, and the jailer comes out and is about to kill himself because he's sure he's going to get killed because he lost all these prisoners, right? That's just the way it worked. <laughs> you keep them in there, you stay alive. That was the contract probably that they, they had with the jailer. Um, okay, so that happens, and then here, here let's keep, keep going. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into the house. And he set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. See, God doesn't uh, keep Paul and Silas out of jail, even though he could. He doesn't keep difficult things from happening. But what God does do is he turns that challenge that they went through, this what felt like a flesh and blood struggle, into an opportunity for the gospel to go forward and for this man to see the power of God and to turn to the Lord with all of his household and no doubt the other prisoners who also just saw all this stuff happening to see what God was doing. He turns all of this difficulty that Paul and Silas go through to an opportunity for the gospel. God opens the door. And he uses that as an opportunity to share the gospel with the jailer. And let's, let's, let's finish up this passage here real quick. We are landing this plane real fast. Uh, when daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. So come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to him, and I like this, uh, they beat us up in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. And now they're going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrate. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them and escorting them from prison. They urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. Paul's a sneaky guy. I like, I like Paul's sneakiness. Look what he does here. We probably need a little bit of a cultural background to understand it. Um, and the worship team can come up while, we're, while we're, we're going through this. Okay, so in the United States, you become a citizen, I think, at least one of three ways. There might be another. Sorry if I'm forgetting. Um, but you are either like born to American parents, you are born in the United States or its territories, or you are a natu- become a naturalized citizen. And once you do that, you have all the rights and privileges accorded to an American citizen all over the world, right? But in Rome, things were more complicated. Rome was this expansive empire, you know, based out of Rome, which is still Rome, so you know where that is. Um, and they were all, all over pretty much the known world Rome was in charge of. Um, but just because you were in, 
in the Roman Empire, you were a, a territory conquered by Rome, did not make you a Roman citizen. It didn't matter if you were in Philippi and Philippi was a Roman city. You, you weren't necessarily a Roman citizen. Uh, in fact, to be a Roman citizen, you had to um, either be born to two Roman parents, not just one, but two Roman parents, and or, or the emperor could give you Roman citizenship. Usually that was because you did some sort of service to the emperor, maybe you served in the military, you fought a great battle, you won, you'd be granted citizenship, um, you would fight for a certain number of years uh, in the army and be granted citizenship, or you were a person of distinction like a, a poet or somebody who contributed to things that Romans really like, and they would offer you citizenship sort of as a reward. Um, or there's the old-fashioned way you could just buy your way in. All right, so there's that too. You could just be super rich and pay somebody and then you could go ahead and become a Roman citizen. And, and being a Roman citizen gave you some important rights in the empire. The most significant being that the local authorities anywhere in the Roman Empire could not put you on trial. You could only be tried by the emperor or the emperor's representatives. Right? So when Rome took over, they, had like lo they let the local governments re retain some autonomy, and they basically said, you just run things, and you just do whatever we tell you to do, but we're not going to tell you to do that much. We, want you to, we don't want to deal with the headache, honestly. That was Rome's attitude. But they, they cared about Roman citizenship. And for this little court in Philippi, this local council or whatever, to put a Roman citizen on trial and beat them up without any, any process and then lock them in jail was a big problem. And Paul understood that. Now, of course, Paul was a sneaky guy. He didn't tell them, no, oh, we're a Roman citizen. He could have done that, interestingly enough. He could have done that, but he decided not to. Why didn't Paul say something earlier? I think it's a really, really interesting question. Why didn't Paul just say, oh, things are going to get tough. Excuse me. I Roman hard right here, you know? Why didn't you pull that out and just prove that you, were, that you were some big deal? Why is that? Because, man, Paul had an identity that he was secure in that was something so much bigger than his Roman citizenship. He didn't care. He could, have been, he could have been done with the suffering, been done with the beatings, been done with the imprisonment. And in fact, he could have flipped the tables on these people and really turned the screws and exerted some authority and make them apologize to him really seriously. But he just says, you know what? I know something so much better than Caesar is Lord, the creed of Rome. I know that Jesus is Lord. I know that whatever happens to me today, Roman citizen or not, the highest authority, the one who watches over my entire life is Jesus Christ. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And so I'll go through the trial. Throw the trial at me. Throw me in jail. It's fine because God knows every hour, every minute of my day. He knows when I'm going to begin and he knows when I'm going to end. And I can just trust him to fulfill his plan. So I can be locked up and I can be beaten and I can be treated like a piece of junk, right? but I can keep trusting Jesus in the middle of it because his authority is so much bigger. To the point where he can enter into difficulty and allow the, the powers that be, these, these, these dying powers of the world, to have and exert real authority and exert pain over me so that, and it's always a so that, it's not like Paul just like enjoyed getting beaten. 
for the sake of serving a lost and confused world, a world that is so unaware of the truth of the gospel, that is that Jesus is Lord, that his authority is really and truly at work in the world. See, because if Paul didn't let himself get arrested and get locked in that prison, then there would be no earthquake and there would be no doors opening and there would be no Roman jailer coming in and saying, oh my gosh, look at the God that you serve. And all the people around him wouldn't have seen that. What we do as Christians living in a spiritual world where there's difficulty and pain and there's a lot of complexity and it seems like there's forces out to get us is that we live secure in our identity that Jesus is Lord. And there is no more powerful thing that we can do in terms of witnessing to what God does than that, than just being secure people, trusting in who God is, trusting that our citizenship is not of this world, but it's of a higher place. And the authority that we serve has more power than any of the things that we could come up against. God is so good and so gracious that we can actually trust him in difficulty and pain. So that's my invitation to you today. Trust God, whatever comes at you, know that his power will keep you secure. Engage in the spiritual stuff. Engage according to the, to the authority that you have in Christ. Absolutely. But know that whatever happens, the Lord has you in his hands and he'll work for his glory in even difficult things. So guys, I hope that you have a great day. We're going to have the after party here in a minute, but we're just going to pray. And I just want to uh, just, just bless you guys. Or would you bless these people? God, how, how amazing it is that you reveal your character and your word and your ways to us, God. You are a blessing and kind and gracious God. We trust you, Lord. We want to learn to trust you. Lord, give us that vision that in our hearts and in our minds we would see the amazing power that you have, Jesus, that there is none who can come against you, Lord. Lord, give us eyes to see that truth. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we've got communion up here. We've got some time, so let's uh, grab communion and come back to your seats.